Early on a spring morning in 1914, I said goodbye to Elio, kissed my mother and sisters, and set off alone from Bonito for the railhead at Apice and route for Naples. My mother could not come with me to the ship, for she had never in her life travelled by herself, and Elio and the girls were too young. So I turned and waved to them as they stood in the morning sunshine on the light tan road until they were out of sight. I cannot remember that I felt deeply sad or homesick. I have never been a man who wastes his time in futile regrets. Before my boyish mind lay a world of miracles, magic and adventure, and I was eager to sample it. Besides, I knew I was not going forever. One day, I would come back, rich and famous, and show Italy how shoes should really be made. I carried one heavy suitcase. Besides the clothes I wore, jacket and shirt, underclothes and trousers, socks and shoes, I took with me two shirts, a change of underclothing, and spare socks. The rest of the case was filled with the food, salami and cheese, and items of my mother's cooking, which she wanted her children in America to taste again. My other possessions were the tickets that would land me at the railway station at Boston, Massachusetts, and about 150 liras, saved up painfully by hard work over the past few months. I had been too proud to beg my fare from my brothers. I reached Naples in the early afternoon and, having a few hours to spare before my ship sailed, I bought myself a rust-colored gabardine coat with a fur collar. The fur was probably dead rabbit, and I thought it was wonderful. In my earlier days in Naples, I had often been jeered at for looking like a provincial. I was determined that no one in America should call me a provincial. I also bought an umbrella cane. The cane was a celluloid covering, and when it rained, you slipped off the celluloid and underneath was the umbrella. As I left the shop wearing the coat and swinging the cane, I was confident that I looked every inch the man from the metropolis. I boarded the SS Tampaglia at six o'clock. I don't remember what sort of accommodation I had expected for the small sum. I think it was about 200 lira. I had paid for a banco in a six-berth cabin, third class, but whatever I had expected, the reality was hideous disappointment. My cabin was in the bowels of the ship, and it was small, dirty, and smelly. Men, women, and children were herded in the crumped conditions that made the cabins look like stables. And when the engines started, handing 
they roar to the noise of humanity, I wondered if I would be able to leave the world voyage through. At midnight, I could stand it no longer. I could not sleep. I lay in my bunk, tossing and turning until desperation forced me into the corridors. There, I found a sailor who, in response to my entreaties, advised me to see the purser. It might be possible, if I could afford it, to transfer to second class. I could not afford a change. According to the United States immigration laws, I needed 100 liras to enter America. But I changed all the same. I paid 75 liras, more than half of remaining money, for a second-class cabin and enjoyed comparative comfort. The problem of landing in the United States without the legal minimum of money could wait. One other problem faced me. As I was under the age at which the United States authorities allowed children to enter the country without a guardian, I had to find some kind person on board who would agree to tell a lie for me at New York and pretend to be in charge of me. It was not difficult. I soon made friends with the men who agreed to see me through the barrier. As the Stampalia knows the way into New York, and anchored to await the arrival of immigration official and tenders, I forgot my troubles. I forgot that I had only six lira instead of a hundred. I forgot that I was a small boy approaching alone a strange country with a false guardian and no knowledge of the language. I looked at tall buildings and wanted desperately to climb to the roof of one of them. As I knew nothing about elevators, I imagined I should have to walk to the top and was confident that I could do it. After my practice in climbing the steep streets of and many steps of Naples, perhaps it is curious, but looking back, I cannot remember feeling any sense of loss. America beckoned me. I felt at home there, even before my feet touched soil. It was all new, huge, and impressive. And I remember thinking that here I could carve a way for myself. It was a country I knew instinctively in which I could be at home. The only discordant element in my shipboard appreciation of New York was an instant dislike for the elevated railroad which I could see from the ship that rattled and banged over the streets along the waterside. I turned at last from the scenery and prepared to pass through the barrier. I changed my money, buying one dollar for five liras. I wrapped the dollar bill around some scraps of paper and tied the bundle with an elastic band, hoping the authorities would be too busy 
with all these people to examine every bankroll minutely. I looked round for my guardian. He was nowhere to be seen. Slowly, I travelled with the moving line of people towards the immigration authorities, nearer and nearer and still no sign of my guardian. At last it was my turn. The officials asked me if I had twenty dollars, one hundred liras, and I'd show them the roll. They nodded and I quickly thrust it back into my pocket. They asked me where my guardian was, and I told them, he's coming, he's here somewhere. They managed to understand me, though they spoke little Italian and I had no English. They ordered me to stand aside and wait for him, and a long time passed. He did not come, he never came. I did not see him again, and I can only imagine that in the bustle and scurry and wild excitement of going ashore, he had completely forgotten the small boy who had appealed for his help. After a good deal of talking and asking questions about my destination, I showed them the paper on which was scribbled my brother-in-law's address in Boston. The officials demanded 25 cents. I did not know why they wanted it. I remember imagining that perhaps it was some sort of landing tax, but I paid it and continued to wait. Finally, I was told I could go through, happily. Completely ignorant of what had happened, I stepped into the lounge that was to take me and some of my fellow travels to a smaller ship for the port of Boston. Although I did not know it, my 25 cents had been used to pay for a telegram to my relatives in Boston, informing them of time of the train in which I would arrive from the port of Boston in the city. The news brought all of my relatives to the station, my sisters Clotilde and Alessandrina and my brother-in-law Joseph Covelli, my brothers Alfonso, Girolamo and Secondino had gone west to California a few months earlier. I blissfully unaware that anyone knew exactly what time I would arrive, picked up my bag as the train rumbled into Boston Station and sweated in my fur-colored coat and brandishing my cane, I descended to the platform and marched sturdily past them, right past them, I discovered later, right under their eyes. My brother-in-law saw me go, but never having seen even a photograph of me, he let me pass unrecognized and unaccosted. Outside the station, I faced the problem of getting to Joseph's apartment. I did not want to take a taxi, fearing that my 
few remaining coins would provide insufficient to pay for the ride. As I stood looking around me, wondering what to do, I noticed a boy eyeing me up and down. I beckoned him over and, showing him the slip of paper on which the address was written, I made him understand that I did not know where it was, and could he help me? He nodded and, chattering away, indicated with gestures that I went down there and turned up there and then went across there. It was most confusing, so I pointed to my bag, which, being heavy, I had put down on the sidewalk and indicated that perhaps it could take me. Yes, it could do that. And he grabbed the bag and off we went. My brother-in-law's house was, in fact, only about a mile and a half from the station, an easy walk. But my guide was not sure of the way in practice as he had been in theory. Soon he was forced to ask a policeman, and it was the better part of an hour before the dumped my bag on the pavement outside the house in which Joseph and my sisters had their apartment. I thanked him in Italian and, not knowing how much I owed him, I took all my remaining coins out of my pocket and offered them to him. He selected 15 cents and, grinning cheerfully, he went away. I rang the bell and everyone in the building came out except the member of my family to exclaim, you are the brother of Clotilde and Alessandrina. They are waiting for you at the station. Then they took me in and settled me in a neighbor's house and I waited until lunchtime before my family arrived worried, tired, and bothered after meeting every train from Bostonport to New York. So, I was introduced to the United States. Two days later, I was introduced to the world of miracles. Joseph arranged with one of the bosses of the Queen Quality Shoe Manufacturing Company then, as now, one of the biggest and best shoe companies on the east coast of the United States, for me to be shown through the factory. When I had inspected to set up, Joseph told me excitedly he was anxious to keep me in Boston and eager to put me on the path to a good job, I could choose which section of the work I liked best and begin employment most at once. I went into the factory. Yes, it was exactly as Alfonso had described it. Everything I could do, the machines did it 
in the twinkling of an eye. Yet I was not impressed. I was appalled. This was not shoemaking. This was an inferno, a bedlam of rattles and clatters and whizzing machines and hurrying, scurrying people. I stood dazed. I walked about dazed, watching the thousands of pieces of shoes going in at one end and of assembly and pouring out at the other on endless bells, rows upon rows of finished shoes, hundreds of them, thousands of them, even or so it seemed after an hour or two millions of them. They were good shoes according to the standards of machine-made shoes, yet to me they were heavy, clumsy, and brutal, not to be compared even with the shoes I had seen in Naples and far, far below the standard I had set for myself. I stared and wondered miserably. How could I choose a job in this labyrinth? This was not my home. I could not be happy here. I was a shoemaker, not a finisher or a trimmer or an edger or any other professional piecemeal jobs which went into these mass-produced shoes. There was no craftsmanship here, not at once. Lunchtime came at last, and Joseph hurried over to me from his bench, smiling, he jerked know what I thought of the factory. My reply took his smile away so quickly that I felt sorry afterwards, that I had not been more tactful. I said vehemently, no, no and no, I can't work here. I won't work here. This is not shoemaking. This is not craftsmanship. I am never going to have anything to do with machine-made shoes, never. That someday I wrote to my brothers in Santa Barbara, telling them I was not content to learn shoemaking by machine and saying I would join them if they could send me some money. By return post, the answer arrived. Come at once. And with it money for a first-class fare and a few extra dollars to convert incidental expenses on the journey. So, within a week of arriving in America, I was in a transcontinental railroad car heading west through a fabulous country. The journey in those days took six days and six nights. The train stopped everywhere, at all sorts of out-of-the-way places. At every mealtime, breakfast, lunch and dinner, we stopped. I sat in my tip-back seat and stared out of the windows, fascinated by the vastness of the land. In Bonito, I had thought my parents' property large. Here, I realized that it was only a postage stamp. 
my imagination was not wide enough to absorb all the implication of this limitless expanse. When we came to Arizona desert and ran for hours through cactus and sand, I wondered why they wasted the land. Why didn't they irrigate it and make it fertile and productive? When we came to the Rocky Mountains, I longed to go hunting there. I imagined all sorts of animals wandering among the peaks, animals I had never seen or even heard of. And I still remember vividly the faces of the Mexican railroad gangs. We passed them at intervals group of dark, sunburned men who lived in the old railroad cars on sidings near the truck. If I was curious about the country, my fellow passengers were curious about me. I was the youngest person on the train, and people came along and talked to me, especially the girls who, I supposed, felt they ought to mother me. I had some Italian books, and one or two of the passengers had learned a little of the language at school. Most of it had been forgotten except for occasional words, of which they did not know the meaning. They would pick up my books and be hugely delighted when they detected a word they recalled from their school days. One or two of them could even recite some short Italian poems, though they obviously did not understand a word of them. The most amusing part of the trip was not apparent until we arrived in Santa Barbara. On the station, my brother Alfonso said, Who's the money we sent you enough for your meals, Salvatore? I looked puzzled and said, What meals? I never paid for any meals. He stared. But what did you do? he asked. You had to eat. Yes, I said. I ate three meals a day, but I didn't pay anything. Alfonso clutched his hair. But you were supposed to pay when you came out. Surely you saw the girl at the door taking money. Then I remembered. Yes, it was true that after each meal, everyone filed through a narrow opening into the corridor, and there had been a girl sitting there. Obviously, I now realized they were paying their 25 cents for breakfast and lunch and 35 cents for dinner. I had passed through also, but intent on behaving as nearly as possible like my fellow passengers, I had observed only that they each took a toothpick. So I had just walked past the cashier and taken a toothpick and had not paid for any meals. The journey was a perpetual delight. With every mile, a new vista opened, and even when we began to run through the final stage of the journey, the environs of Santa Barbara, on the branch line from Los Angeles, I could not feel myself out of place or fearful. I was only a boy, and I had no job. Yet, I refused to consider what would happen to me. 
I could only gaze at the beautiful scenery. Santa Barbara was lovelier in those days than it is today, full of large houses and glorious with flowers. The railroad ran through the gardens of the wealthy, and I was so impressed that when the train stopped and I stepped out to meet my brothers, I ran at once to a postcard seller and bought pictures of Santa Barbara to send home to my mother to show her the difference between our Italy and the beautiful California my brothers had written about. When the joy of the reunion between us four brothers had been celebrated with laughter and excitement, there followed a series of anxious family concerns over my future. My attitude was plain and, I'm afraid, uncompromising. I wanted to make shoes and I wanted to make them by hand. My few days in America had stimulated my mind and my imagination. Limitless horizons spread before me, new models, new design, jostled in my brain, clamoring for releasing the new, the exotic, the glamorous material which I felt this vast, pulsating country would offer. In my adolescent exuberant and my inborn knowledge of my destiny, I believe I could do anything. I could do anything if only I could get a start. There was, however, a darker side. My brothers were happy to have me with them, but were disturbed by my refusal to have nothing to do with machine-made shoes and upset by my determination to make shoes of my own. People in America, they said, with the exception of the extremely wealthy, did not buy and make shoes. They could not even afford them. Besides, work of any kind was none too easy to obtain. And at that time, only Girolamo was working full-time. My brothers had been tempted west from Boston by the United States government offer of land in California to anyone who would cultivate it. But when they had looked at the land, they discovered that it was so far from civilization and so huge, perhaps they were afraid of losing themselves on it, that they preferred to hang around Santa Barbara, earning what they could. Girolamo was a tailor, secondino a carpenter, and was working only part-time. Alfonso, who had left the Queen Quality Shoe Company on doctor's advice, the monotonous work of age-trimming had aggravated an old shoulder injury, was sometimes a tailor and sometimes a comforter and sometimes a far laborer. He would do anything to earn an honest dollar, even to milking cows and pressing suits for the actors of the American Film Company studio in Santa Barbara. Finally, it was suggested that they might pool our resources of money and brains and open a shoe repair shop. Eyes, though don't mind, began to be brightened. I knew all about shoes, my brother said, and perhaps under my leadership, there might be work for us all in a repair shop. There was one snack. I had no interest at all in a shop devoted exclusively to repairs. It might prove to be 
profitable, but it would give me no opportunity for making shoes, and make shoes I must. When the problem seemed insoluble, I even suggested that it might be best if I looked for an opening elsewhere in America. It was then that Alfonso had an idea. It suddenly occurred to him that the American film company might need handmade boots and shoes. If I could get work from them and sufficient work to keep me happy, the others could run the repair shop. Solemnly, we debated the position. Alfonso was sure that with his contacts at the studio, he could arrange a meeting with the wardrobe director. So we decided that it was worth trying anyway. The idea seemed to offer a solution which would suit us all. Alfonso's contacts proved as unmanageable as he had hoped. The wardrobe director had no objection at all to showing Alfonso's young brother around his domain. So a few days later, I entered a film studio for the first time. How shall I explain my feeling as I strolled about the place with Alfonso, my interpreter at my shoulder, looking at the dresses and the cloaks and hats and shoes? I can only say that here I felt instantly at home. I wanted to work here. I felt immediately that this was work that I could do, if only the work was available. Presently, my eyes fell on a handsome pair of cowboy boots. I had never seen cowboy boots before, and I picked them up, fondling the leather, examining the style. Emotion rose with me. The emotion I always feel when a challenge is placed before me. I saw at once that they were made of good leather, but I also saw that the workmanship was not good at least. It was not as good as my work. I felt angry, I felt eager, I felt excited. I turned the boots over and over, seeing at once in my mind the way I would make them. The eel could be changed, the lines of upper and mass could be changed subtly, not to destroy but to enhance their appearance. I pointed out the defects to Alfonso, telling him what I would do, and the interpret to the wardrobe director, who was standing looking at us both with a sudden sharp interest. When Alfonso had finished translating, the wardrobe director exploded. He had already told us a few of his difficulties, and now he went into a tirade about the cowboy boots. Those boots, he said, they are always wrong. We have them made in Eureka, in the far north of the state, because we can get them made anywhere else. And when the boot fits, it's the wrong style for the picture. And when the style is right for the picture, the boot doesn't fit the star. It was the opening I needed. I said to Alfonso, ask him, if I stay in Santa Barbara, 
will it allow me to make this boost for him? Alfonso repeated the request. He had already explained that despite my youth, I was a shoemaker in my own right. Now the wardrobe director slapped me on the back. My lad, he said, if you can make better boots than those, you can have all the business I can give you. What's more, I will pay you more than I pay them just because I held the bootmaker under my eye. It was enough. That night, after a Niger conference, Girolamo, Secondino, Alfonso and myself decided to plunge. We would open a shoemaking and repair shop in Santa Barbara.